0: Welcome to the Classics Podcast Does Ancient History A Level, brought to you by the Classical Association. Today, I'm delighted to welcome two guests who are going to be discussing with us Interpretation Question Three, the reasons for the Athenian defeat in the Peloponnesian War. So let's meet them. We have from Cardiff University Dr. Maria Fragulaki, who is the senior lecturer in Ancient Greek History and from Cambridge University, Professor Paul Cartledge, who is the Emeritus A.G. Leventis Professor of Greek Culture. So let's think about this interpretation question. And the key point perhaps to make is we're looking for the reasons for the Athenian defeat in the Peloponnesian War. So there's not just gonna be one reason, I suspect, we're looking at a range of them. Okay, well, let's think first of all about the sources for this period. So Maria, if I can uh, turn to you first of all, what are we relying on uh, and what problems do we encounter?
1: Well, for most of the Peloponnesian War, our main to is Thucydides' history, but this text breaks off at 411, and then Xenophon, another Athenian historian, takes over in his Hellenica, in the first part of the Hellenica, deals with the end of the war from 411 to 404 and the final demise of Athens. In general, the situation becomes a bit messier uh, after 411, also because Thucydides is a very dominant voice. And after 411, we have Xenophon, we have the later Diodorus in the Augustan period, we have Plutarch uh, in the Roman period and his lives, which are very valuable. But also in the earlier sources... Covering Thucydides' period as well, we have, uh, for example, Aristotle's Athenian constitution, which is so valuable for the events around the 411, 410, the 400, uh, the oligarchy coup, and the constitution of the 5000, which followed. And then for Persians, personalities such as Cyrus, we have Ctesias, a different sort of author, a physician in the court of Artaxerxes II, who has a different portrait to sketch for, uh, for Cyrus uh, than Xenophon in his uh, expedition. So we have multiple sources on this. And perhaps one last point has to be made about comedy. It is drama, it is fiction, but it's so valuable in relation to some personalities, such as the, the warmonger, the clown. He has some valuable insights to offer us, uh, especially in relation to initiatives for peace.
0: Thank you, Maria. That's very helpful indeed. Well, Paul, if I can come across and welcome you. And just one other specific point about these sources. Is it worth remembering that Thucydides himself, although his narrative cuts off in 411, he survived the war. So he's writing his history and intending to account for the whole war, but he knows how it ends. And so we have to consider that in terms of how he frames his history.
2: Completely right, James. the composition question, as it's called, has sometimes dominated interpretation of Thucydides precisely because of this seeming contradiction. On the one hand, he writes it up seemingly as the war is unfolding. He tells us that um he was of an age to understand things when the war broke out four three two to one, and that you get the feeling that he's kind of an embedded reporter. But <laughs> when suddenly he interjects, as we're going to come on to later, an obituary notice of one of the leading actors in the war, which actually refers to the end of the whole war. And perhaps we should say there's a little bit of an issue. Is it one war or is it two wars? At any rate, it's a great long series of fighting, interrupted quite substantially, extending over 27 years. So on the one hand, he is uh, seemingly, he wants us to think that he's, as it were, a journalist on the field, and he's reporting back, Uh, he's filing copy. On the other hand, he's reflecting on the war and its ultimate meaning. I mean, he's sometimes thought to be more of a political philosopher than he is what you and I would call a historian, or if you like, an embedded journalistic historian. So he's a deeply complex figure, and one has to be careful because he was an Athenian, a brilliant intellectual Athenian, But should we be so reliant as we sadly, in a way, are on just this one dominant, as Maria put it, figure?
0: Thank you. That's excellent. Well, I think that leads us very nicely to our chronological survey. And let's come back to the year 432, just before the war is going to break out. And we have these series of meetings and speeches going on in Sparta. And the Spartan king, Archidamus, is very sceptical about going to war and he seems to say that we need three things to be in place for the war to be won. The Athenian allies need to be in revolt, the Spartans need to have funds, and with those funds they need to be able to build a navy to match the Athenians. So do we think that Archidamus may have actually said something like that? And As a second part to that question, Paul, could you tell us a little bit about what Spartan-Persian relations had been like for the previous decades?
2: Let me start with the first point about the nature of Thucydides' uh, history, which is a combination of speech and narrative. And Thucydides is very self-conscious, which is um, partly because I think of the time in which he lived, a, a time of great questioning in Athens in particular but also because he is writing very consciously in succession to a really great uh, historian, Herodotus, the father of history, as it's called. And Thucydides' narrative picks up just about exactly where Herodotus' narrative ends in 479 or so. So Thucydides is conscious that of the speeches, the evidence for those, ones that he himself could not possibly have heard, There is no, as it were, archive. There's no recording that he can go and check what Archidamus actually said to the Spartans. So what he does is he writes what he thinks Archidamus ought to have said, given the circumstances in which Archidamus was speaking. Now, Archidamus had been king for a very long time, so very experienced. He'd played a key role as one crucial moment in earlier Spartan history when a great revolt of the subject population, the Helots, had actually endangered the whole Spartan state. This is back in the 460s. Archidamus was the key figure in putting that revolt down. His memory, therefore, stretches back to not long after the previous great conflict, the, the Great War involving lots and lots of Greeks. In this case, it was when the Persians invaded Greece under Xerxes in 480. And the Spartans led the resistance on the Greek side together with the Athenians. And so therefore, Sparta-Persia, hostile from the word go, but this is um, spoiler alert, in the Peloponnesian War, those relations are going to be significantly reversed. So that one of the causes, I'm anticipating here, one of the causes why the Athenians lost involves the Persians and the Spartans combining against them. How could Thucydides know what Archidamus wanted to say? Well, he would have known a little bit because of what Archidamus then did. After the war was declared, Archidamus, being the senior Spartan of the two kings, was bound to lead the Spartan plus allies of Spartan army, as indeed he did. So we're in the spring summer, 431, the year after the speech that we're talking about was uh, notionally delivered. Archidamus was very hesitant. He didn't sort of rush to the walls of Athens, but dilly-dallyed to such an extent that his people, people on his side, thought he was less than totally committed to actually attacking Athens and bringing it to its knees. The Spartans generally, it seems, being of the view that that was the way to bring the Athenians to their knees. You attack them in the traditional way. You threaten their crops. Athenians are going to be starving. And then they're going to have to sue for peace. Well, Archidamus, as Thucydides represents him, had a broader vision of the war. And as James, you correctly said, in a way, Thucydides uses Archidamus as a warner figure. So the reader of Thucydides, who, of course, has lived through the war, remember, Thucydides is writing the whole thing after the war has ended. You know, he's writing at least some of it after the whole war has ended. They therefore know how the war actually evolved. And so Archidamus does seem to be used by Thucydides as a sort of predictor, if I can put it that way.
0: Thank you, and then just on the issue of whether there have been longer term relations between the Spartans and the Persians.
2: So far as we know, no direct contact. There is a talk in the middle of the 5th century when the Spartans were um, involved in what's called sometimes the First Peloponnesian War, i.e. a series of conflicts and encounters between Athens and Sparta, but mainly between their respective allies. And there is mention of a Persian ambassador coming to, as it were, explore the the field. But the point is this, that Athens was at war with Persia from the 470s until at least the 440s. There's thought that Athens made a peace with Persia in the early 440s, in which case both Sparta and Athens are technically not at war with Persia after the 440s. But there's no, I think, reason to think the Spartans had any contact direct until, now this is very interesting, both Athens and Sparta put out feelers Just about the time they're debating whether or not the Athenians have broken a peace that they'd made with the Spartans, in other words, whether the Spartans had a casus belli, a cause for going to war, of both Athens and Sparta sending ambassadors into the Persian Empire. Well, what they want is money. And fighting a war, especially at sea, costs a great deal of money. They also want to know, of course, which side, if the Persians are wanting to get involved at all, are they going to give their money to? So again, that predicts what actually happens in the Four Tens and in the final phase of the uh, Peloponnesian War.
0: Well, thank you. Well, let's loop round to the mid-420s, and we're going to come back to Pericles, I think, uh, in a moment, and think about those sources. So, uh, as Paul says, Thucydides 450, which is a prescribed source, talks about both the Athenians and the Spartans sending ambassadors to Persia uh, to, to test the water, as it were. Uh, and we've also got on the syllabus some lines early on in the play Akarnians by Aristophanes, where a Persian embassy arrives back in Athens. That's line 61 to 71. And we've got a passage by uh, an Athenian orator called Andocides, who's speaking in the early fourth century who refers to a piece of Epilicus, that's Andocides 3.29. Um, Maria, all of these suggest that there are channels going on and that early on in the war, both Athens and Sparta want to at least keep the Persians quiet. Is that right?
1: Yes, indeed. As Paul said, as soon as the war broke out, both sides, Athens and Sparta, sent embassies to the Persians. So we need to keep in mind that basically these contacts continue throughout the war. It's just that they they don't always surface in Thucydides' history. We get this letter that uh, was intercepted uh, in 415 Thucydides. It is intercepted by the Athenians, a letter coming from the king, carried by an embassy from the Persian king to the Spartans, complaining that the king doesn't really understand what it is that the Spartans want from him. Do they want money? Do they want perhaps territory in Asia Minor? What exactly they want, they need to clarify. And this tells us something about this Spartan wobbliness, <laughs> a Spartan wobble in their policies, which would follow them until the end of the war. We, we need to be aware that the Spartans are uncertain about what their policy is throughout the Peloponnesian war.
0: Thank you. Well, look, let's pull it back to the beginning of the war. And, and Paul, if I can come across to you, we have Pericles' policy of essentially winning through. That's the translation of the the phrase. The idea that you sit behind the walls of Athens, you don't engage the Spartans in battle because the Spartans are better on land, the Athenians are stronger at sea, and you just wear down the Spartans' patience. So is the first reason that they lost the war that they gave up on that policy and became more expansive? Could they have just won the war by sticking to Pericles?
2: Let's just um, be a little clear that there is a debate among scholars about Thucydides' representation of Pericles in general and Pericles' policy for the war, his strategy in particular. As Thucydides represents it, it is a primarily, overwhelmingly defensive strategy, as you've described it, James, with, and this is the thing that's not often specified or stressed perhaps enough, important offensive elements, e.g. twice yearly invading by land the territory of one of Sparta's more important Peloponnesian League allies, Megara, e.g. sending fleets around the Peloponnese, which are big, you know, hundreds of ships, which means thousands of men, which means lots of money. And one type of source which we have nothing like enough of, but we do occasionally get, are public accounts. So in other words, how much the Athenians are having to spend on the war. And one of the things that it's pretty clear to us that Pericles got wildly wrong, as represented by Thucydides, and as we probably think Pericles really wanted to do, which is how much it was going to cost. Because about six years into the war, the Spartans um, have successfully, um, up to that point, um, they've been invading and they've been resisting and whatever. But the Athenians suddenly find they have to treble the amount that they're demanding by way of tribute from their naval allies. So this is a major internal Um, It must have been a debate and dispute. And therefore, it's very important that um, we remember that.
0: And if I can come in there for students, students will know that is the Thudippus decree, uh, which is a prescribed source.
2: Oh, well, that's excellent. So as Thucydides represents it, one of the major mistakes, there are several, but as James says, this is one of them, and you could say this is um, one of the more important of the several possible reasons that Thucydides gives for Athens' ultimate failure, is to abandon his version of Pericles' strategy, namely to get much too aggressive. And there's just one I'm going to mention now thing which is a little bit puzzling in itself, but fits in with this picture of a Athenian politicians after Pericles' death, not entirely sticking to the Periclean narrative. And it's an expedition sent to Sicily. What on earth were the Athenians thinking of? In It's about 426, 425. Um, Why were they interested in the West? We'll come back to that. But um, it's just an indication of how they were much more aggressive by sea than you would have predicted from what Pericles says Athens was going to do.
0: Okay, so uh, I guess the question though, Paul, I'm gonna uh, try and nail this down. If they had just stuck to Pericles policy, could they have won the war?
2: Ah, so everyone, yes, um, the the word Thucydides used, periainai or perigignestai, means um, to survive, which is very negative, you know, not be killed, to still be there. Um, But um, a translation has been suggested, win through, which captures this ambivalence. There was a problem um, because very soon after the war broke out, plague struck Athens. Very soon after the war broke out by the invasion of Athenian farmland, Athenian farmers, middle class, uh, as it were, Athenians, hoplites, not poor sailors, got very upset at the thought of just watching their livelihood, Not, not just their crop of this year, but their entirety of their life going up in smoke almost under their eyes. Pericles suddenly became extremely unpopular. Therefore, there was much more, I think, risk in Pericles' purely defensive strategy than Thucydides will allow. Now, on the other hand, the Athenians survived the plague. They survived the invasions, which did relatively less damage to Athens overall. They damaged individual Athenians terribly. And the Athenians, therefore, um, well, are we moving on already to the mid 420s? They had one particular gain by invading the Spartans own home territory and setting up a camp, a base actually within Sparta's home territory and therefore encouraging the defection of helots, the same helots whose fathers had revolted the generation before they really put the Spartans under the cosh, round about 425, 424. And that suggests that those Athenians who believed in an aggressive policy were thinking, hmm, this is going well. You know, we're making the Spartans on the back foot sue for peace. And then, of course, it all went belly up in the north when the Spartans did exactly the same to the Athenians by hitting the Athenians where their um, timber came from and to some extent their wheat. So it was a ding dong. And your question, would they have done better to accept a peace offer in the mid I think yes, on the one hand, but on the other hand, it wouldn't have washed with Sparta's allies or with Sparta, because the Athenians weren't sufficiently smashed and they must, as Spartans have thought, there was still always a chance of doing that.
0: OK, thank you. Well, that, that's answered that question then that I was going to ask about the, the Spartans sue for peace after Pelos. Uh, and the Athenians reject those terms. And that is potentially another moment that Athens could have taken a winning draw, if you like. But you feel, Paul, that the the Spartans wouldn't have accepted that or their allies wouldn't have accepted that, that it, it leaves things too uncertain politically.
2: We know what happens and we, we have the benefit of hindsight, 4-2-1, when um, there was a kind of ding-dong on both sides as to what sort of peace and indeed whether peace of any kind was going to work internationally as opposed to making an alliance specifically between just Sparta and just Athens. So I think the international situation was much too complicated, even in 4 to 5 two, 4
0: Okay, well, thank you. Well, that brings us across to uh, Maria. And let's talk about this piece of of Nikias, or Nikeas, however you want to pronounce his name. And this was signed in 421. And the context here is that in the previous year, in 422, both Cleone and Brasidas, who were perhaps the leading antagonists on both sides, were killed up in uh, the northern Aegean region in a battle. And we get more dovish figures in both sides who are looking to create a peace. So we get this piece of Nikias. Maria, why does it fail, and could it have been a long-lasting peace? Do you think?
1: Well, it is dubbed by, if you said it is, as an insecure truce. Perhaps before going to the specific problems, we must think of. A factor which is a bit overarching of a a Thucydides interpretation, which is that of national character. The Athenians wouldn't be the sort of people who would make truce, even when they were defeated, let alone when they were victors. Now, on the specifics of the truce, there were problems with their allies. They wouldn't accept the terms, uh, the allies of uh, of the Spartans. And there was an additional problem that the Spartans uh, had a problem with the Argives within the Peloponnese and their 30 year truce with the Argives had expired. And they now, the Argives did not wish to renew the peace treaty. And which is exactly one of the problems that led to the Spartans taking a kind of unilateral step of, of ignoring their, not ignoring, but not having their allies on their sides Uh, they approached the Athenians for a 50-year alliance, which is apparently a step after the truce. Uh, But uh, certainly the general message is that both sides, affected by the impact of of their own disasters, the Athenians in Amphipolis, the Spartans in Pylos, they somehow uh, sought opportunities for some lull. even the Athenians who are generally represented throughout as reluctant to strike a peace, So they sought some kind of, of settlement. And we have a preliminary stage a year before, where there is a preliminary stage of, of a sort of a truce between... They, both sides explore that. We find that in book four. Which, however, didn't stop the Athenian allies in the north going over to the Spartans, for example, which is something that led to the Battle of Amphipolis. So all things considered, it was a very problematic truce, and for this reason it didn't last. It meant to last for 50 years, the alliance at least, and it lasts only for <laughs> six plus something. It's from 421 until 415, something like more than six years.
0: Okay, thank you. So yeah, we've got two pieces really going on. We've got the peace of Nicias, uh, which is supposed to involve the allies of both sides, and then we've got this independent 50-year peace signed between Athens and Sparta. Can you just tell us a little bit more about those Peloponnesian allies? Uh, I think there's about three or four of them who specifically say we we want nothing to do with the peace of Nicias. I think Corinth is one. Why don't they like this peace?
2: Yeah, the the period between the signing of peace and um, the swearing of peace and then alliance and the Battle of Mantinea four one eight BC is one of the most confused and confusing in diplomatic terms of all ancient Greek classical history. And Thucydides doesn't help us, he does his best, but the shifting alliances within each side, the shifting of ground between, as well as within um, the two sides is exceptionally complex. On the Spartan side, two particular allies, Mantinea and Elis, have grouses with um, the Spartans added to Corinth. And Corinth, historically, within the what we call the Peloponnesian League, it's a modern term, it had been in existence in some form since the end of the 6th century. Corinth had always been number two to Sparta because of its geopolitical position on the Isthmus and because it had the biggest fleet of any of Sparta's Peloponnesian League allies. And so in a war that's amphibious, in a war that involves conflict between the Peloponnese and central Greece, Corinth is literally pivotal. And so they actually at one point secede during this period and they get a kind of mini anti-Spartan alliance going. And if I may move to the other side, the Athenians um, very cleverly, in a way, exploit this. And this is the time when a figure who's exceptionally controversial, whom I think Thucydides personally will have interviewed, whom the Athenians couldn't quite make their mind up about um, collectively, individually, namely Alcibiades, comes to the fore. And his family and his name, indeed, are Spartan. He's of uh, originally Spartan origin. And he has a certain sense that um, he wishes to historically play a key role in relations between Sparta and Athens. Well, at this point, between 421 and 418, he senses that Argos, which, as Maria says, has just come out of a treaty relationship with Sparta, which ever since the 7th century, had hated Sparta because it wanted to be number one in the Peloponnese, not Sparta, and which, now this is a fact we've not yet mentioned, shifted between oligarchy and democracy. Thucydides is very aware that the internal struggle between democrats and oligarchs quite often played out on the international stage, as between the Spartan Alliance and the Athenian Alliance. So one view is that the Athenians were, under Alcibiades' leadership, intervening directly in the politics of the northeastern Peloponnese, stirring. And actually, that worked quite well. The only problem was, of course, that it broke formally the treaty of alliance, not so much the peace of Nicias, but the one between Sparta and Athens. So There we have to leave it, I think, until, if I may go on just to mention the conclusion of this phase, the Battle of Mantinea.
0: So was there a possibility there for for the Athenians to really get in behind Alcibiades' plan and create some sort of Argive-led anti-Spartan alliance in the Peloponnese and have crushed Sparta like that? Did they, if they'd gone very offensive there, could they have completely won the war that way, do you think?
2: No, again, I don't think um, there was any way short of um, a helot revolt, um, short of absolutely, as uh, the Thebans did in 370-369, I'm looking well ahead here, invading Sparta's home territory. You don't beat the Spartans just by playing around in the northern Peloponnese. Or indeed at sea, because um, the Spartans at this time, remember, have no fleet of any significance apart from Corinth. So uh, again, you know, this is going to come later, but there's no possibility there. So I think the Athenians were doing all that they could, which is to weaken Sparta, to raise up all sorts of enemies against them, strengthen their existing enemies within the Peloponnesian League, ideally, of course, breaking up the Peloponnesian League as a whole would have been very damaging. And that is again what happens in the 360s BC when Sparta is finished, finally. So I think the Athenians did all they could. The problem they had with Argos was that, as I mentioned, within Argos, there are Democrats who tend to look to Athens, oligarchs whose sympathies, whose, um, as it were, political ideological sympathies, are more with Sparta than they are with that. If there's a choice, you know, they're not going to go with a democracy. And so you get a change of regime in in Argos a couple of times in the first half of the Four Tens.
0: Yes, and I think after that Battle of Mantinea in 418, there is then another peace signed between Sparta and Argos, isn't there? Is it 50 years at that point? Yes,
2: Sparta no, and Sparta and Mantinea, because the, a victory at Mantinea, as Thucydides brilliantly puts it, restored Sparta's reputation. They thought the Spartans now again were what they once were. And the point there is since Pylos, which had really hamstrung them, And made them look stupid because they had a bunch of Spartans surrendering and then they were kept as prisoners in Athens. I mean, really bad for morale and for all the alliance uh, support for Sparta. So Battle of a standard um, hoplite, one of the relatively few traditional hoplite encounters and the spartans under king Aegis, we should say that archidamus is by now dead and his son agus ii has taken over a terrific victory a trouncing of the athenians on land in 418
0: okay so we get to 418 or so and we get to, to some sort of evening out of the situation sparta has reasserted itself And then of course, we come to the Sicilian expedition and we could spend a whole podcast series talking about the Sicilian expedition, but we're not gonna do that. Uh, I want to look at this expedition in some very targeted and focused ways because I'm sure these students will be familiar with it. So Paul, we'll carry on with you. Very simple question. Could the Athenians have conquered Sicily if they'd used a different strategy? So was it ever a realistic target or was this simply imperialism gone mad? I mentioned earlier that the Athenians had shown interest, we're not sure quite
2: what, in Sicily as early as the mid-420s. The ostensible reason for getting involved again was to support a non-Greek people, very interestingly, um, in the far west of Sicily who had a grouse against people who were allied with uh, people who were allied with Sparta. And so there's a sort of indirect connection with the main Peloponnesian war, which is Athens versus Sparta, but not a very direct one. We hear of, um, partly from comedy, actually, absurd notions of Athenians um, expanding their empire. This is, of course, very much against Periclean strategy, as described by Thucydides. As far as North Africa, we're going to take on the Carthaginians, who, of course, had their stake in Western Sicily. Already. So things actually do build up involving the Carthaginians, partly because the Athenians get involved in Sicily. But the ostensible reason is to help a particular people against another Sicilian entity. And that seems relatively modest. The war as it evolves turns out to be Athens versus Syracuse, Syracuse being an ally of Sparta and Syracuse being the biggest city uh, oligarchically governed until relatively recently, before the Peloponnesian War, actually, it then becomes a kind of democracy. And so that's actually one of Thucydides' points. You've got two enemies who are very similar. Normally, Sparta's pro-oligarchy and Athens' a democracy and pro-democracy. So very different types of polity fighting each other. And so What the Athenians seem to have got wrong, this is, you can infer this from uh, Thucydides' account, he doesn't spell it out. Why did they not go straight in against Syracuse? Why did they waste time seeking allies going around North Sicily, Northwest Sicily, building up support and then taking on Syracuse? Well, if we believe Thucydides, one of the three commanders, and of course, that's part of Athens' problem, they had three commanders who had different views on what the best strategy was. One of them, Lamachus, says, go for it, straight for Syracuse. Alcibiades says, no, 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 we'll get lots of um, alliances together. And then Nicias, as often, is indecisive and shilly shallys between the two. So the strategy was proven completely wrong of not taking on Syracuse when it would have been relatively unprepared when Athens had a huge armada. And of course, we must add in the complication, namely that Alcibiades had been summoned back in 415-4 to to face a charge of uh, impiety.
0: Well, I want to talk about Alcibiades at this point because... I think from about 419 onwards, everything's about Alcibiades. That's all what I always say to my students. So in terms of Athenian mistakes, Maria, we have the whole situation with the recall of Alcibiades to face trial uh, and his defection to Sparta. So two parts of this question. First of all, why is he recalled? What's going on? Uh, And secondly, how does his defection to Sparta as a consequence affect the course of the war?
1: Well, as the preparation of the Sicilian expedition is ongoing in Athens, we have the outbreak of a huge scandal. The mutilation of those slabs, the Herms, uh, which stood at doorposts and at uh, crossroads and brought good luck. And Hermes was the god of, of travel, after all. So these were mutilated uh, at a night of, uh, of revelry. And at the same time, there were accusations of uh, the profanation of the mysteries mysteries means Eleusinian mysteries. And it was a huge religious scandal. It caused fear to the Athenians. And Alcibiades' political enemies, who saw in his general lawlessness, as as Thucydides tells us, about the way he conducted himself, his extravagant lifestyle, Alcibiades' political enemies found a chance, an opportunity to cause trouble to him and accuse him of tyrannical ambitions. Uh, That was a constant fear for the Athenian democracy. So to make the long story short, Alcibiades insists to to stand trial before the sailing out of the Sicilian expedition, because he was the main advocate of it. Nicias didn't want to go, really. So he was the heart and soul of the expedition. The Athenians really relied on him and they loved him. There was a love affair relationship almost represented both in Thucydides and in comedy with Alcibiades and the Athenian demos, the Athenian people. So he was crucial to the expedition and we really don't know what would have happened if he had sailed out and stayed on. So Alcibiades insists that he stands trial but he's not listened to, he leaves and then he has been recalled. He never makes it back to Athens because he defects to the Spartans, as, as we said. So Alcibiades' uh, loss from the expedition was fatal, but it, it was not only that he was lost to the Athenians, it was a gain for the Spartans, because going over to the Spartans, this enabled him to give crucial advice to them. Two pieces of crucial advice, at least two pieces. One is appoint a general of yours and send army of yours there to organize things, and this is Yilibus. And second, fortify the position of the kelaya within Attica and bring the war next close to Athens for the Athenians. And we see that being a huge, a huge parameter of the final outcome. It is not only the Ionian war. I mean, we shouldn't really be calling that war Ionian war. We should be calling it Ionian as regards this, a part of the world, the Asia Minor coast, but also the Kelian War. Because at the end of the day, we may remember that after Egospotamoi, the Athenians find themselves besieged by land, King Agis, who is installed in the Kelia, and from Pyreus uh, by Lysander's ships. So and it was one of those mistakes that Thucydides has in this very important chapter early on in his history, which looks at the final outcome of the war. And there he unpacks those mistakes and he says, they took decisions. It was not so much a mistake of judgment, the Sicilian expedition, but it was that they didn't take the correct decisions in relation to those that sailed out. And one of the mistaken decisions, one such decision was the recall of Halcybates.
0: Thank you. That's very, very helpful. And yes, we get a very clear picture here, don't we, both from Paul and from Maria, of Athenian indecisiveness. They don't know what they want. So you've got the three commanders in Sicily disagreeing about strategy. And then back in Athens, you've got lots of politicking going on, and people who are opposed to Alcibiades wanting to recall him. So it's not a united front in Athens. And that seems to cause these mistakes. Well, we know from... Thucydides that this defeat in Sicily is uh, in 413 is a total disaster. Um, He describes it in very graphic terms. So I guess that the next question, Maria, is: was Athens's defeat in the Peloponnesian War inevitable after that Sicilian disaster, or could they have recovered?
1: Certainly not, is the short answer. They could have recovered, and they they did recover. They did pretty well. We have to think a little bit before going to the specifics and some battles that followed after 413. I would like us to think a little bit again, we could think in terms of national character. The Athenians were not the sort of people who would give up easily. And we get the sense immediately after this uh, description of the very pathetic description of disaster in Sicily, we find them back home being organized quickly, building ships, Appointing 10 wise men, probuloi, some overtones of, of some kind of oligarchy coming up, not yet there, but something conservative so- sounding there. So, appointing those 10 men who would sort things up and uh, put uh, the city on a more secure footing. And then, in terms of, of the war, we have some very good victories in Kinosima, Abydos, Kizikos. Even Arginusae, although it's this disgrace and and the loss of the generals because they didn't collect the wreckage, they were very important victories.
0: So just to be really clear then, and I think that's a very interesting point, that the Athenian defeat wasn't inevitable. And what that means, of course, is as we carry on with our conversation, is we're looking for further mistakes as to why they then lost the war after 413. Well, we're going to leave part one of this podcast at that point, but don't go away. Because in part two, we'll be looking at the final 10 years of the war, which led to the defeat of the Athenians. Make sure you follow the Classics podcast on Spotify so that you'll be the first to hear about each new episode. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you follow us on Instagram at The Classical Pod. For bonus materials, check out our website, classicalassociation.org forward slash podcast.